January 13, 1982. Air Florida Flight 90, a Boeing 737 with 79 people on board, is about to take off from Washington, D.C. National Airport bound for Tampa, Florida, then on to Fort Lauderdale. A bitter winter storm is slowing down airport operations and has delayed the flight due to the runway needing to be cleared. Once the runway is cleared, Air Florida 90 gets de-iced and joins a line of planes waiting for takeoff. Once cleared for takeoff, the flight begins to climb, but within seconds, the stick shaker activates, warning of an impending stall. The crew tries to increase engine power and nose down, but it is too late. The plane impacts the 14th Street Bridge over the Potomac River and plunges into the icy water, breaking apart. Only six people manage to escape the wreck and become trapped in the frozen river. When it's all said and done, 74 people on the plane and four people on the bridge are killed in the accident. What happened to Flight 90 that prevented them from taking off safely? Was there an issue with the plane? Did the weather contribute to the accident? Was there anything the crew could have done to save the flight? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hi. Here uh, with another episode. Throughout the time we've done Black Box Down, there's a few accidents that I remember really well from being a little kid. And they were accidents that made me super interested in aviation and kind of like started the seeds for making this podcast. And this is one of them. I'm glad we're we're finally getting around to doing this this accident because it's... uh, I remember seeing like the news footage as a little kid. I probably didn't, you know... I was four when this accident happened. I was just about to turn uh-huh. four years old. I probably didn't see it when it happened. I probably saw it afterwards, like yeah. in you know news recaps when I was a little older. Uh, but I remember like it sticking with me as a little kid as like really like something I wanted to learn more about. All that to say, I'm glad we're finally talking about it. The seeds finally come to bloom. <laughs> I was I was four, and I thought I don't know what podcasts are yet, <laughs> but I think I'm going to make one. <laughs> I would love to have a radio show about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll record it on tape and distribute it via the mail. Mm-hmm. First of all, I do want to say, uh, give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I know there are some things from this episode that I do want to post that uh, you'll you'll definitely want to see for yourself. So Air Florida, probably never heard of it. Mm-mm. Nope. They're a defunct airline. Uh, they, uh, they were in operation from 1971 to 1984. It was a low cost carrier. They were based out of Miami. They, you know, they tried to expand. They, it's one of those airlines. We've kind of briefly touched on this, but like there was airline deregulation in the 70s. Yeah. They used to be government controlled. And it's one of the airlines that kind of popped up and tried to take advantage of like the deregulation and, you know, position themselves as a low cost carrier, the whole thing. Anyway, they uh, no longer exist. Uh, they, they ceased operations in 1984. I wonder if this flight had a significant uh, impact on that uh, business failure. It's possible, but I think they were very. What, what, what do they say in the business world? They were very, uh, they were over leveraged financially. I ah. think they had a lot of debt. And I think that uh, I'd actually read up on it a little bit. They made money on foreign currency trading. Uh, <laughs> huh. And uh, huh. yeah, it's kind of, kind of a weird business for an airline to be in. And they kind of like started not making money on that. And it uh, kind of dominoed and it was a whole deal. Uh, they, uh, they went under. Seems like two different businesses. It does seem like a very different business. Uh, I didn't dig too much into it, but I did see that just because I was curious about Air Florida. Unless you're physically flying the currencies to other countries. Yeah, I don't know. It's a Which different time, I, that doesn't man, make 40 sense. years ago. I don't know. I guess if you're trying to, yeah, I don't know, we're the wrong, different podcast. Different podcast. So Flight 90 was captained by Larry Wheaton, who was 34 years old with 8,300 total flight hours. 2,322 of them uh, being commercial jet experience, all logged with Air Florida. Uh, And he had 1,752 hours on the 737, uh, and 1,100 of which were as captain. So quite a bit of time Mm -hmm. as a 737 captain, uh, almost exclusively with Air Florida. Uh, First officer was Roger Pettit, who was 31 years old, had 3,353 flight hours, 992 of which were with Air Florida, all on the 737. He had been a fighter pilot in the U.S. Air Force uh, and had 669 hours as a flight examiner, instructor pilot, and ground instructor uh, in an F-15 fighter unit. His name was Roger what? Pettit, P-E-T-T-I-T. So in the cabin, are they like, Roger, Roger? (laughs) Yeah, that's a a joke from Airplane, Chris. We already talked about Airplane. I think about it. I was like, this guy's actually named Roger. Roger, yep. What's our clearance, Clarence? Um, (laughs) I forgot. Yeah. I know we talked about that on a bonus episode. Yeah. So uh, the first officer, uh, Roger Pettit, would assume the controls on Flight 90, and the captain, Wheaton, was monitoring the flight instruments. Both pilots were from Florida. 
or I should say they called Florida home as more appropriate. And as a result, they had limited experience taking off and landing in frozen conditions like they faced that day. That makes sense. Yeah, because right. how often does it freeze in Florida? It's like, how often does it hell freeze over? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's generally very warm in Florida. I don't think it freezes very often, much less to the point where it's yeah. like the, the conditions they had that day in Washington. I believe total, Wheaton had eight takeoffs in freezing weather and Pettit had two. Oh. So they were very, that's something they were used to. Yeah. And this particular day, the freezing temperatures at Washington National Airport had reached 24 degrees and snow was falling heavily. That's about negative four and a half degrees Celsius. Mm. And the airport had to shut down operations for snow removal between 1.38 and 2.53 p.m. And Flight 90 was delayed because of it. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, the airport only had one runway. So they had to shut down while they cleaned it. Sometimes when the airports have multiple runways, they'll shut down one, clean uh-huh. it, do everything on the other runway, then swap, open yeah. up the one they just cleaned and go clean the other one. Uh, this airport only has one runway, so they couldn't do that. They had to shut it down, clean it, and then open it up. I should also mention this airport is no longer called Washington National Airport. It's Washington Reagan nowadays. They named it after Ronald Reagan. Okay. So if you're wondering what airport it is, it, it's not called that anymore. It's now Washington Reagan. So Flight 90 was de-iced with heated water, followed by a finish of anti-ice coat of monopropylene glycol. And the aircraft needed to be de-iced to clear the wings of snow and ice so that they could get lift uh, from the wings and, you know, they would be able to climb and accelerate and fly. Uh, And if there's any, like, ice or anything on the wing, it can disrupt the airflow and spoil it so that they don't get appropriate lift. It's very important to get de-iced. Yeah. You say de-iced, right? So they get what put on them? First, it's hot water. It melts all the ice. But then you would think like, oh, that's just going to refreeze yeah. the ice. They follow it up with a chemical that has a much lower freezing point and prevents everything from freezing. And they like goo it on? Uh, they also spray it on. It's a liquid. Okay. So they just like, and then, it, and then that doesn't just like that. Does it stick on? Do you know what I mean? Like, or does it just wash off? Is it like a goo? I guess it's, it's, it's not super thick. It is a mm. liquid, but I think it. It does stay around long enough to prevent the buildup yeah. of ice, if that's what you're getting at. Yeah, I'm just trying to like think about how the process, this might be getting ahead, but isn't it bad to go from extreme temperature changes? Isn't that like, if you have a, a, a like a glass, right, and, and, and it's really cold and you put it in hot water, it can like shatter it? Yeah. I guess that's not a problem with planes. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, these are metals, uh, you know, as opposed to glass. And also it's not like it was a, boiling hot water mm. it just has to be above freezing right it just has to melt the ice that's there okay so it's not quite the same and it's it's not the same material you know it's not glass so you don't have to worry about that as much there is there will be a temperature swing but it won't cause anything to break i'm gonna some of that goo for my car well i think it's uh i don't know but i think it's a very similar chemical compound to antifreeze oh. you may have something similar in your car already uh. so antifreeze has ethylene glycol they used uh, monopropylene glycol for de-icing. So I'm not a chemist, but sounds kind of similar. Yeah. Okay. Sorry to derail the, the uh, getting caught up on the, the icing and de-icing. But if we hadn't talked about that, really, like this, the goo. We, yeah. hadn't, we hadn't covered goo. Yeah. Uh, like a real quick search, just reading here. It says, from what I can tell, propylene glycol has low toxicity, whereas ethylene glycol is poisonous. I don't know. We could probably do a whole separate episode <laughs> just about uh, de-icing and antifreeze. I don't, I, I don't know enough to, to speak authoritatively yeah. about it, but just try to give a general idea. Okay. So this 737 was powered by two Pratt & Whitney uh, JT-8D turbofan engines, had flown over 27,000 hours before the crash. Mm-hmm. And before departing, the flight crew had exchanged some concerns about maybe needing another round of de-icing before takeoff. But they decided they wouldn't hold a, you know, they didn't want to, get out of line because they're in line, right? Because mm. the airport was shut down. Everyone you know, gets de-iced and gets in line to take off. They didn't want to leave the line, uh, go get de-iced and get back at the back of the line. Yeah. So they opted to stay in line despite the fact they did notice some ice starting to build up again on the wings. Mm. And like I said, there was a line. They were waiting behind a New York Air DC-9 that was in front of them waiting to take off. And the captain decided to do something a little strange. He decided to like kind of snake his plane around behind the New York air flight to try to get the exhaust of the jet engines from the plane in front of them to melt 
the snow and ice on his plane. Huh. I mean, there's a logic to that, but... Right. If you need it that bad, then probably just, like, go get the ice, right? Right. And... You said that's like a weird thing. That's not a normal practice, right? No, no, yeah. no, no, God, no. Um, the DC-9, like the the amount of thrust it was putting back from its engines, was it would probably be about 60 miles an hour of wind at about 300 degrees. So really hot, right? The problem is, I'm going to give you a little spoiler right now. The problem is it does work, right? Like it melts some of the ice uh-huh. at the front of the wing. Uh-huh. It makes it liquid into water, but then it just blows it back over the wing where it refreezes. So it might, so it melts it, but then makes it reform even in a weirder place, probably. Right. It like melts the front part of the wing and then the ice goes back, you know, or I say the water flows yeah. backwards and then just melts. Oh, I'm sorry. Then freezes back on the wing. Yeah. Probably in a worse way. If I was to guess. Probably. So they started their takeoff roll. You know, they're finally, you know, told to line up. They're cleared to take off. Mm-hmm. And when they start their takeoff roll, the first officer noticed the plane didn't seem to have the power that was indicated by his engine pressure ratio uh, indicator. So we've talked about these before. EPR or engine pressure ratio is just like a gauge that they have to measure how much thrust is coming out of the engines, how yeah. much power they're producing. Before takeoff, you know, they do all the weight and balance. They figure it out. And they figure it out for takeoff. They needed a, an EPR of 2.04 on this flight. So, like, they bug it and, you know, they give they increase the thrust until the uh, EPR hits 2.04. And it does. And the first officer, you know, comments, like, doesn't seem right. Something feels weird. Yeah. Okay. You know, the captain looks at his airspeed indicator. And, you know, the captain, you know, says, oh, it's fine to me because they're, they're accelerating. Right? They hit 80 knots and they eventually hit their required rotation speed, which is 139 knots. That's what they need to take off. Uh, so the captain just kind of ignores the first officer's concerns. Mm. He's like, yeah, we're accelerating. It's fine. And they proceed, you know, with their acceleration. He was saying, yeah, we're accelerating, but we're not accelerating as much as we should. Is what, right. So like it feels weird. Right. Yeah, something's off. Right. So on the plane, 71 passengers, three mm-hmm. infants. Uh, one of the passengers was a private pilot. Okay. You know, uh, his name was Joe Stiley. And I've seen um, interviews with him. He, he survived. He's one of the people who survived one of the two. crash. Is it two? It's just two, right? Because there were... Five. Five people. Okay. I thought there were... How many... Six people get out of the plane, but one of them doesn't uh, survive. So five people ultimately are able to get out and survive. Okay. One of whom is Joe Stiley. He was a private pilot, and he'd flown at this airport himself. And, uh, you know, when they're taking, doing the takeoff roll, he says he could tell something was wrong. He said that they were further down the runway than they should have been. He said like it was taking them longer to take yeah. off than normal. And uh, he said he could just feel that something was wrong and that when the airplane did take off, he uh-huh. said he could feel like a rattling throughout the entire plane. Ooh. And uh, he was traveling with his secretary. Uh, they were going down to, to Florida for business. I forget what it was that he does. But he could tell something was wrong. Everything started rattling. He got into the brace position and he told his secretary, hey, copy me. Do what I'm doing. <gasps> Uh, and they both got into the brace position. They both survived uh, he, he, this wreck. In the, if this in the movie version of this, he's the uh, protagonist. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I just thought it was crazy that. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, private pilot who's like, oh, something's wrong. He braced on his own, had his coworker do the same, and they both managed to survive. Only yeah. five people survived, and they were two of them. That's wild. That's why I'm saying he's the protagonist of this story. Yeah. <laughs> so the pilots, you know, no notice. They realize they're not getting the appropriate speed to climb. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the stick shaker is activating. So, you know, they push the nose down. And this is in the air at this point? They're already... Right, they've, they've just taken off. Okay. So they push the nose down and then try pulling back again to try to re-engage lift. And, you know, they realize they're unable to pull up. And w- the last exchange on the cockpit voice recorder is the first officer saying, Larry, we're going down, Larry. And the captain saying, I know. Oh, no. Yeah, uh, Air Florida Flight 90 crashed into the 14th Street Bridge over the Potomac River. It hit the bridge and hit seven occupied vehicles that were on the bridge. Oh, crap. The wreckage destroyed 97 feet of guardrail before plunging through the ice in the Potomac River. Remember, it was January. It was a snowstorm. The river was frozen over. This is wild. Yeah, it went into the frozen river, you know, broke up the ice, started sinking. There were 74 passengers and five crew members. All told, you know, four passengers and one flight attendant were rescued from the crash. There was a fifth passenger who survived the initial crash, uh-huh. crash, 
but he was tangled in like cables and wiring and wreckage. Oh. And he was unable to break free. Uh, and as the, the plane sank, he uh, was dragged out. Oh, oh that's terrible. I, ugh. That's so, that, mm. All told, a total of 82 divers who were trained to dive in icy water were uh-huh. brought in, you know, to, uh, to sit, conduct salvage operations and, you know, recover the flight data recorders and cockpit voice recorder. And they recovered them seven days after the crash. And uh, we're going to get a little, a little more into, like, the rescue of the people here in just a bit. I have a quick question. Yeah. How long were they in the air? Oh, seconds. I mean, it was not long at all. All told, it looks like maybe 22 seconds, 25 seconds, Ooh. somewhere around there. So that's a good question because now let's, let's get into like a second-by-second second breakdown of what happened. This is another one of those episodes where everything happens so quickly it's yeah. hard to like really yeah. establish what, ha- what happened. So we're just going to kind of really like spend time and break it all down. At 3.59 and 24 seconds, the tower cleared them for takeoff. And then at 3.59 and 50 seconds, so 26 seconds later... The turn to the runway heading was completed, and one second later, the captain said, it spooled, referring to the engines. There was no airspeed data on the, cockpit, on the flight data recorder below 80 knots, so they kind of have to throw out some of that data yeah. for a while. Remember, this is also the 80s. It's not computerized. It's like old black boxes. But the first airspeed that was valid at 82 knots was at 4 o'clock and 10 seconds. So uh, was it 20 seconds later. One second before that, the copter called 80 knots, uh, you know, just calling out that airspeed's working. 11 seconds later, he called 120, and then he called, you know, the V call out at 4 o'clock and 31 seconds, or or 10 seconds after 120 knots, and uh, their rotation speed was 139 knots. The flight data recorder showed a sharp decrease and then a gentle rise in the altitude uh, beginning at 4 o'clock and 31 seconds, and that's just because the way that the... the flight data recorder recorded stuff, there was a slight change in static pressure caused by the airplane rotating it's like a super technical explanation it's just a limitation of the technology at the time okay so there's like a weird discrepancy where it shows <laughs> the plane descend and then rise it's just like there's just a weird discrepancy just old technology the v call out occurred at four o'clock and 37 seconds and the sound of the stall warning began two seconds later and continued until impact so they pull back to rotate and take off and immediately uh-huh. the stick shaker is going off it's just like going off the entire time you might get into this, but like they should have just not taken off, right? I don't know when it was obvious, but well, at the at the point when the first officer is saying it doesn't feel right, something's weird. Uh-huh. Maybe they should have realized they're further down the runway than they should have been. Yeah, and then like called it off. Like I don't know. Yeah, I think they maybe wanted to get out of there. They were delayed. Their homes were in Florida. They probably wanted to just get back to Florida. It's like a case of what they call it: get their itis. Yeah, long runways. Uh, here at the Austin airport, you may have mm-hmm. seen it. Long runways will have markers on the side of the runway indicating how much of the runway uh, you've gone through and how much is left. Uh-huh. Uh, like every thousand feet. So that you have a general idea. Hey, how much is in front of me and how much is yeah. behind me? So that you know, like, hey, we should be in the air by now for this kind yeah. of reason. Um, they probably didn't have that back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if they did, it may have been covered by snow, right? Yeah. After rotation... The aircraft began to climb at a fairly constant but slightly decreasing airspeed. Uh, between 4 o'clock and 37.6 seconds and 4 o'clock and 46 seconds, the airspeed decreased from 147 to 144 knots. So they're pulling back to climb, which is causing their airspeed to go down. And the stick shaker is going off. So it's like they're really in a bad position here. They're low with very little energy. There's yeah. not really much you can trade here. Altitude at the end of this period was 240 feet. And the heading had changed about three degrees to the right. And during the next seven seconds, airspeed decreased significantly from 144 to 130 knots, while the heading changed to the left from nine degrees to 2.4 degrees. The maximum recorded altitude uh, was 352 feet, and it was achieved right around this time. That is nothing. It's low, really low. They were just giving it full power, right? I assume? No, not, not yet. No, not by what? this point. Because remember, when they, when they roll for their takeoff roll, they try to hit that EPR target. They don't want to go, they don't want to overstress the engine. So they give it enough yeah. throttle to hit that target. So they're not at full throttle. They're at their takeoff power. Okay. I will say they do eventually give it full power five seconds before impact, but by then it's too late. Mm. In simulation, they said if they had immediately given it full power or if they'd given it full power 10 seconds before the, fi- the time that they actually did, uh-huh. they would have been able to recover. Jet engines don't 
instantly respond to throttle. They, yeah, they probably have to like, yeah. Right. That's to like spool up and power up. It's not like your car where you like, well, maybe it is like your car. You stop on the gas and, you know, you have to wait for the acceleration to kick Especially in. Especially my yeah. car. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> maybe your car <laughs> responds immediately. My car, no. Yeah. Uh, so there is there's a little bit of a delay, and that's why, even though they, they gave it full throttle five seconds before impact, it didn't yeah, did that, yeah. achieve anything. So as the aircraft descended, uh, the right wing was structurally damaged when it hit a boom truck. Uh, shortly thereafter, the aircraft struck the steel barrier and railing. A boom truck? Yeah, you know what that is? Uh, a boom truck? It's like a, a truck with a telescoping arm. There's a boom truck on the bridge. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't know what that was, but I was like, seems like the worst truck you could possibly get. <laughs> a truck that goes boom? <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's, it has a boom. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so it hit the boom truck, and then shortly thereafter, it struck the steel barrier and railing on the west side of the 14th Street Bridge at an elevation of about 37 feet uh, mean sea level. Were they trying to land on the bridge, or did they just hit the bridge like uh, uh, perpendicular? They didn't have any control. It was perpendicular. Okay. They weren't like aiming to put yeah. it down. They were just stalling and falling. Okay. Uh, so yeah, they, 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 they went perpendicular across. That's a good question. And fragments of the right wing remained on the bridge and the remainder of the wreckage sank in the Potomac River uh, in about 25 to 30 feet of water. You might get to this. They hit several vehicles. Right. What about those people? Four people in cars on the bridge died. Oh, man. I think there may have been more injuries. I don't know off the top of my head. All I I'm know sure is there were definitely were. four fatalities in there uh on the bridge people in cars uh i think we've talked about that before and about like near misses with people nearly getting hit like in their cars it's it's absolutely crazy to me to think about i know that's it's just driving along and then just yeah i have seen mm -hmm. vi like videos like dash cam videos where people are driving and all of a sudden like a plane lands on next to them yeah and lots of times those are like Private planes, like little single-engine Cessnas and whatnot. But this is, you know, we're talking about a 737 here. This is crazy. So after the impact, the aircraft broke into several major pieces. Uh, the fuselage broke into four major pieces, which included the nose section with the cockpit, the fuselage section between the nose and the wing center section, and the fuselage to wing intersection, and the aft body structure with the empennage attached. Empennage is like the tail structure. And so you know, they just kind of describe how all the different pieces break apart. I don't think we really need to get into like all the technicalities of where everything was. You know, it's clear this wasn't an explosion. It's, it's, it's very clear at this point what happened, right? And, but that being said, there was no evidence of fire on any of the recovered structure. Records recovery was immediately initiated after the accident. Uh, uh, recovery operations were conducted in coordination with the National Transportation Safety Board by various segments of the Department of Defense, Department of Transportation, Metropolitan Washington Police Department, all under the general direction of the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA. Remember, this is Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. Lots of government agencies. Like, I mean, the Department of Defense uh, is involved with this. Jeez. Oh, yeah. And it's its own, like, state, essentially. Yeah. Um, it's a whole other thing. Our U.S. listeners might be confused, but our American listeners know what we're talking about. So each of the two engines was equipped with a thermal anti-ice system which was composed of three anti-ice valves, which are designed to open when the respective engine anti-ice switch is placed on. There's a lot of very technical details here about how it works. Uh, I'm just going to kind of broadly cover it and say it, in a very broad sense, works by taking bleed air from the engine and blowing that hot air out over the front of the engine. Because, uh you know, the air inside the engine gets really hot. So it just takes that heated air and then redirects it, redirects a little bit of it, out over the front of the plane to help melt any ice accumulation. Yeah, well, like what that, like what the captain was trying to do, but. But this is what <laughs> he's designed for. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was like, yeah. what if I did it myself? <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, yeah. Um, the, 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 like, just to give you a taste of how technical this is, it's like the inlet guide vanes and nose cones use the eighth stage compressor bleed air and the cowl anti-ice system uses the 13th stage air. It's very, oh. <laughs> very in-depth uh, discussion uh, in the report about how it all works. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm just trying to kind of simplify it. Yeah. It took, takes hot air from the inside and then redirects it outside to melt everything. Probably how the heater in your car works, huh? Does yeah, it? I would guess it's very, it's very similar. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it's, it's a good analogy. So the engines had anti-ice systems to deal with them. The wings, you know, they got them de-iced, but 
the pilots acknowledged that there was ice on them when they were getting ready to take off. They tried to, you know, get behind that New York airplane to get their ice melted. And I think this is a time to bring up a relevant conversation. There's a, like a conversation with the cockpit voice recorder that is important here. So when they're running through the takeoff checklist, the following conversation takes place. The first officer asks pedo heat. The captain says on pedo heat is like a heater on the pedo tubes to, so that if any ice accumulates on them, it melts or it it just stops ice actually from accumulating because it's so hot. It makes the pedo tube really hot so that any water that hits it cannot freeze. It stays as water. And the pedo tubes are like measure stuff outside the plane for the right. No, they they, temperature. They'll feed the airspeed indicators. Yeah, speed. Right. The first officer asks engine anti ice, and the captain says off. Why? You would think you would want that on, right? Yeah. Why? It's speculated Uh that they were just used to having it off because they flew in Florida all the time. Okay. Yeah, the correct response should have been on and turn it on. They never turned their engine anti-ice system on. So despite the fact there were icing conditions, the temperature was 24 degrees or negative 4 Celsius, they failed to activate the engine anti-ice system. And they even acknowledged it. And They were doing things like, let's get behind that, let's try and get in the hot vent of that plane because it's so icy. That is wild that they were just, no. No, off. Um, it's, this is also a relevant time to bring up something else. The captain on May 8th, 1980, uh, he had been suspended after failing a Boeing 737 company line check and was found to be unsatisfactory in these areas. Adherence to regulations, checklist usage, flight procedures, such as departures and cruise control and approaches and landings. Mm, That's everything. That's all of this. (laughs) On April 24th, 1981, he received an unsatisfactory grade on a company recurrent proficiency check when he showed deficiencies in memory items, knowledge of aircraft systems, and aircraft limitations. He would later pass retests before resuming uh, his duties. So the captain kind of had some issues with checklists mm-hmm. uh, and adhering to procedures, which is what we're seeing right here, right now. Yeah. So since they failed to activate the engine anti-ice systems, that's what caused the engine pressure ratio indicators to provide false readings. Gus, that is... Why? This is so frustrating. Right. Essentially, ice had gotten over the EPR sensors in the engines, which was making them read incorrectly. So it was showing them they had their required output of 2.04 EPR. But in reality, the actual EPR was only probably about 1.70. So they didn't have enough thrust, which goes to your earlier question. Like when you asked, they were probably they'd probably given it full throttle. No. In fact, they'd given it insufficient throttle. Oh, Um, what started the investigators down this path of looking at the engine anti-ice systems and, you know, what was going on there is when they recovered the EPR gauges, you know, from the wreckage, uh-huh. they're stuck in their final position, right? Oh. And they look at the EPR gauges when they recover them and they say, these readings are too high. No engine can give this much EPR. So they knew, like, these are giving bad readings. Why are these giving bad readings? And that's when they work backwards and discover that. They were like... According to the, the EPR thing, they're like, they gave it so much thrust that it was impossible to give it that much thrust. At- right. So obviously the gauges were reading higher than they should. Yeah. Which is what the pilots experienced. The gauges said 2.04, even though they were getting 1.70. Yeah. This, this, this is bonkers. Yeah. And that's why the first officer presumably was asking, is that right? Because they hit their EPR target really quickly. Like, you know, he increased the throttle and the EPR shoots up. And that's why he's like, is that right? That doesn't seem right. You know, the engines probably don't sound right to him. Yeah. It probably just feels off. And they didn't have any discussion about the anti-freezing of the engines not being on. They're just like, nope. And they just move on. That was it. That was, you just heard the entire discussion about it. Okay. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's maddening. There's a system to prevent this and they just left it off. They, and they acknowledge that it's off. Was there anything else was, was like the weird ice on the wings? Did that contribute at all? Yeah, absolutely. There was ice on the wings, which was spoiling their lift. So they needed more power to overcome that. But they were they didn't have enough power. Oh, my God. It's like two of the worst things possible. You have poor lift coming off your wings and insufficient thrust coming out of your engines. Like and You need those two things. Insufficient thrust and like bad instrument readings. Right. Uh, it's just everything's just coming together to lead to disaster, right? Yeah. I don't know about y'all, but every year I struggled with what to buy my dad for Father's Day. I mean, sure, you could stick with the same old tie, pocket knife, or beer-themed apparel, 
But why not switch it up with a gift that he'll want to use every chance he gets? Well, luckily, electric e-bikes created a mode of transportation that anyone can ride. It really is the perfect gift this year. Uh, plus, you don't have to break the bank to enjoy their amazing models. You can get them for as low as $73 a month. They come with a powerful removable battery, bright LCD display, 7-speed gearing, and 5 levels of pedal assist to power your ride. Electric e-bikes are foldable and ship-free, fully assembled. Uh, best part is you can save money on gas and help the planet at the same time. Uh, I cannot say how awesome it is that they come fully assembled. You open up the box, unfold the bike, which sounds crazy, uh, and you're good to go. That's it. I love using it. Every chance I get, I'm always trying to find an excuse to hop on my electric e-bike and just run to errands in the area, whatever I want. And it's you'd be surprised. Sometimes it's faster than taking a car. You don't have to worry about parking. Just lock it up at a you know the bike rack that's right by the front of the wherever you're going. Super easy. Anyway, so skip the plate out gifts this Father's Day. Give the gift of adventure with electric e-bikes. Visit electricebikes.com to learn more and explore the epic models electric has to offer. That's L-E-C-T-R-I-C ebikes.com. There's nothing worse than checking your bank account and seeing that you've been charged for a subscription you forgot to cancel. Or worse is when you try to cancel a subscription, the website makes you double, triple, even quadruple confirm that yes, you really want to cancel. Scary truth is that over 80% of people have subscriptions they forgot about. So you could be charged for things you aren't using without even realizing. Thankfully, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills all in one place. Rocket Money quickly finds your subscriptions for you, and for any you don't want to pay for anymore, you just hit cancel, and Rocket Money will cancel it for you. It really is that easy. Over 3 million people have used Rocket Money, uh, saving the average person up to $720 a year. Uh, even if you don't think you have extra subscriptions that you know you don't know about, uh, I can say from first-hand experience, you'd be surprised. Uh, I still had some that I totally forgot about. Rocket Money made it so simple uh, to cancel. All I, do, all I had to do was hit cancel. Rocket Money took over, did the rest. Uh, saving money, can't say enough good things. So stop throwing your money away. Cancel unwanted subscriptions and manage your expenses the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash blackboxdown. That's rocketmoney.com slash blackboxdown. Rocketmoney.com slash blackboxdown. Kick summer off with new gear built to last. Our friends at Shady Race have you covered for the warm weather ahead with premium polarized shades at an affordable price. In case you don't already know, Shady Rays is an independent sunglasses company, offers a world-class product. It's just as good as any expensive pair I've ever worn. Plus, Shady Rays offers the most insane protection in all of eyewear. Every pair of sunglasses is backed by lost and broken replacements. So if you lose or break your pair, even on day one, they'll send you a brand new pair. No questions asked. There's no doubt. Shady Rays, they're my go-to. Uh, they, I've got a pair. They live in my bag. I take them everywhere with me, uh, especially this time of year. Sun gets super intense in Central Texas. Uh, got to have them handy. Uh, and they're great. They're absolutely phenomenal. Can't say enough good things about them. Uh, if you don't love them, you can exchange it for a new pair or return them for free within 30 days. There's no risk when you shop with Shady Rays. Their team always has your back. So just for our listeners, Shady Rays is giving out their best deal of the season. Go to ShadyRays.com. Use code BLACKBOXDOWN. For 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses, try for yourself the shades rated five stars by over 250,000 people. Again, that's shadyrays.com. Use code BLACKBOXDOWN for 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. This is also an interesting investigation because the investigators used the recorded audio from the cockpit voice recorder to isolate the frequency of the engines uh, and determine the power at which they were operating. Because they, like, they didn't have sufficient data on the flight data recorder. Again, mm -hmm. technology was primitive. So they just use the audio from the cockpit voice recorder and they isolate the frequencies the engine operates on to listen to just the engines. And then in simulations, they try to match that frequency and they confirm that the engines were running at lower power than was indicated by the EPR gauge. And uh, this was the first time, I believe, that this was done in an investigation where they like, isolate just a specific engine sound to mm -hmm. listen to it and try to figure out how much power it was outputting. That's cool. Yeah, it's easy nowadays. You like open up an audio editor. You're like, oh yeah, you know, clean all this stuff up. But, like <laughs> we're talking about like, you know, the early 80s yeah. here, right? So it's it's kind of cool that this was like, they were coming up with these these um, these yeah. systems at this time. Have you ever seen, it reminds me of uh, the conversation. Uh, it's it's just all about like, like it's like a spy thing and they're just like this one conversation. He spends like the whole movie like trying to isolate different parts of it. Uh, I've never, I've never heard of this movie. It's a Francis Ford Coppola movie. To be honest, it's a little boring, but um, <laughs> is it? <laughs> it's a little slow. It's a little slow, but okay. Yeah, it, it's it's that same kind of like, oh, we're gonna take this audio and like isolate everything and trying to, mm -hmm. just to get what we need. No, that's very similar to what they did here. Um, so the thing that stuck out to me as a kid uh, about this was seeing the 
the footage of it, right? Because mm-hmm. the news media was got there very quickly after the crash and filmed the rescue of the people who survived. So I remember oh, being yeah, a little kid and, and, and yeah. watching this. They were in the middle of Washington, D.C. Right, yeah. The first member of the news media to arrive was a person named Chester Panzer with uh, WRC-TV. Uh, a crew member and he were returning from another story and they'd been stuck in traffic in their news vehicle on the George Washington Parkway when the plane crashed just a few hundred yards away from Holy them. moly. So they'd like, you know, get out of their car and run over. And minutes later, they're like, they're shooting video footage of the crash scene showing wreckage and the survivors in the water and the first responders arriving. So that's what I remember seeing is like video footage of people in this icy frozen water trying to be rescued and, you know, like first responders going out there and uh, like a helicopter hovering over and trying wow. to get people out of the water. It's really incredible footage. And that's, that's something I'll link to that in our social media for this episode. Uh, his work earned him a 1983 Pulitzer Prize finalist honors wow. for Spot News photography. Wow. It's incredible to see. Even Again, even as a little kid, I remember being riveted. Like, wow, I can't believe what I'm seeing here. So at uh, around 4.20 uh, local time, Eagle One, which was a United States Park Police uh, uh, Bell 206L long-range helicopter based at the Eagle's Nest in uh, Anacostia Park in Washington, arrived and began attempting to airlift the survivors to shore. At great risk to themselves, the crew worked close to the water surface. Uh, At one time, coming so close to the ice-clogged river, the helicopter skids dipped beneath the surface. So they were getting in, like, the bridge is right there. They're getting right on the water, dipping the skids into the water, trying to, like, pick people up and rescue them that's that that's great so they're just like that sounds dangerous yeah it looks crazy chris i can't believe that because the the helicopter could have gotten stuck right or like crashed yeah Yeah, and then there's even more people that is Um, crazy eventually the the helicopter crew lowers a line to the survivors to try to get them to hold on to it and tow them to shore the first to receive the line was uh, a man named Bert Hamilton. He was treading water about 10 feet from the plane's floating tail. Remember, the water's freezing. It was frozen. Mm, the plane yeah. broke through the ice. There's huge chunks of ice everywhere. The pilot pulled Bert Hamilton uh, across the ice to shore while avoiding the sides of the bridge. And by then, some fire rescue personnel had arrived to join the military personnel and civilians uh, who pulled Hamilton from the water's edge up to a waiting ambulance. The helicopter returned to the aircraft's tail, and this time... Arlen D. Williams Jr. caught the line. You know, he grabbed the line that the helicopter was lowering. Uh-huh. Williams, however, he was the passenger who was unable to free himself from the wreckage. He was all tangled up. Oh, yeah, that guy. So rather than hold on to the line, he passed the line to the flight attendant, Kelly oh. Duncan, who was towed to the shore. That's, well, at least that's, that's good of him. Yeah. I just looked it up. Water around freezing point, persons likely to survive only 15 to 45 minutes with flotation and possibly up to an hour with flotation and protective gear. So yeah, they don't have a long time in this frozen river. Right. It's, it's a very dangerous situation. And speaking of which, on its third trip back to the wreckage, the helicopter lowered two lifelines because they feared they were running out of time. Oh, man. They thought that the, the survivors only had a few minutes before succumbing to hypothermia. Yeah, I want to see this footage because I, I, like, how big is a, of a river is this? Like, I'll send it to you after this. And yeah. please, if you're listening to this, uh, you know, check out our social media. I'll, I'll put a link to it. It's, it's unbelievable that you get to see this. So Williams, who was still strapped into the wreckage, again, passed the line uh, to Joe Stiley. He was a private pilot I mentioned before, uh, who braced. Uh, Joe was holding on to another passenger named Priscilla Torado. She had been blinded because jet fuel had gotten into her oh. eyes. Oh, dang. Uh, she, it was temporary blindness. I believe her, her vision did come back. Oh, that's good. But still, that's, see, again, protagonist. Yeah, she's in freezing water. Yeah, so Joe Stiley hands her the line. So he's trying to help her. And his coworker, remember I said his secretary mm-hmm. who we told to brace, her name was Nikki Felch. Uh, she took the second line. And so, like, Joe Stiley's kind of trying to hold on to both Priscilla and Nikki and try to, like, get them over to the shore. Yeah. But as the helicopter pulled them through the water, uh, you know, they're hitting blocks of ice. Uh, both Torado and Felch lose their grip and fall back into the water. Uh, Joe Stiley was also really hurt. He said he couldn't really use his left arm very well because uh-huh. uh, of his injuries. So he couldn't really hold on to them. So they, so, so, so the three of them were being airlifted out essentially, but then his secretary and then the, the woman blinded fell off. Right. And then Priscilla Torado, the one, she's the one who was uh, blinded. She was too weak to grab the line when the helicopter came back to her. And it's, it's, when you watch the footage, you can tell that she's like disoriented. Yeah. And she can't see, like she's on a piece of ice and you can tell like she's very weakly trying to swim, but it's not having any effect. Oh. 
So at this point, a watching bystander, it was a congressional budget office assistant named Lenny Skutnik, oh, took Lenny. off his coat and his boots and he dove into the water and swam out to her and pulled her to shore. Lenny, <laughs> just, just a, just a, you know, a, a, a regular budget congressional little guy, you know? Yeah, it, it's funny. It's like, you know, there are people on the shore, but, you know, someone has to jump in. Yeah. You know, someone has to like step up and actually do it. And it was uh, Lenny Skutnik. He Lenny you know, jumped, takes off his coat and his shoes and jumps into the water to, to save someone. The helicopter then proceeded to where Felch had fallen. Uh-huh. And paramedic Gene Windsor stepped out onto the helicopter skid and grabbed her by the clothing <gasps> to lift her onto the skid with him, bringing her to shore. And he had to like balance there. He, I don't think he was attached to the helicopter. That is crazy. He just like, that's at, like movie scene. Yeah. And this is, he grabbed the, the, the woman who was uh, jet fuel blinded? No, that was the woman that Lenny saved. Uh, he grabbed the, uh, oh. the secretary who had also braced. Okay. When the helicopter returned for Williams, the wreckage he was strapped into had rolled <gasps> slightly and had submerged him. Oh, Williams. Yeah. According to the coroner, Williams was the only passenger to die by drowning. Poor guy. But he was a hero. Yeah. He, you know, didn't try to take yeah. the line and, you know, monopolize it. He passed it to other people so that they could live. And in fact, the repaired 14th Street Bridge over the Potomac River at the crash site, it had been officially named the Rochambeau Bridge. It was renamed the Arlen D. Williams Jr. Memorial Bridge in his honor. That's uh, nice. Yeah. Uh, it was renamed in March of 1985. Yeah. That's a nice uh, recognition of, of him. Yeah. And there was another passerby uh, by the name of Roger Olean. He was a sheet metal foreman at St. Elizabeth's Hospital. Uh-huh. Uh, he was on his way home across the 14th Street Bridge in his truck when he heard a man yelling that there was a plane in the water. And he was the first to jump into the water in an attempt to reach the survivors. Oh. Uh, and at the same time, several military personnel from the Pentagon... Uh, Steve Raines, Aldo De La Cruz, and Steve Bell ran down to the water's edge to help uh, Olean. So civilians Roger Olean and Lenny Skutnik received the Coast Guard's gold life-saving medal. Uh, Arlen D. Williams Jr. also received the award posthumously. And Skutnik was introduced to the joint session of the U.S. Congress during President Ronald Reagan's State of the Union speech later that month. Wow. He got a standing ovation during wow. the State of the Union. They were just helping people like... Of these people that were they were getting out, like what did they help them like specific yeah, ones just like, or just all of them? Trying or, to help them. Yeah. Yeah, just trying in general to help free people and you know do what they can to to facilitate things. This is what this is crazy. Yeah, it's you can see why even as a kid, I remember yeah. just being awestruck watching this. God, I mean, we talk a lot about crashes, but I feel like there are a lot of times where there aren't a lot of survivors on the ground. And if they are they're not in a situation quite like this. Yeah. I don't think we've talked about like being stuck in a frozen river. Right. With only minutes. Yeah. You know, you survive a plane crash and then it's like, oh, we're not out of it. Like we are in a very dangerous situation. Yeah. The weather before and at the time of the accident was characterized by sub-freezing temperature and almost steady, moderate to heavy snowfall with obscured visibility. The aircraft was de-iced by American Airlines personnel. The procedure used on the left side consisted of a single application of a heated ethylene glycol and water solution. No separate anti-icing overspray was applied. The right side was de-iced using hot water and an anti-icing overspray of a heated ethylene glycol uh, and water was applied. The procedures were not consistent with American Airlines' own procedures for the existing ambient temperature and were thus deficient. Oh. This is like, yeah, like, a, like a, an interesting asterisk here. So the way the plane was de-iced was not by the book and it was found to be deficient by that standard. But the investigators like run the calculations and look at it and they say, it was probably okay. Like this is not the way they should have done it, but uh -huh. it would have worked. It would have worked okay, as is evidenced by the fact that many other planes took off okay. Yeah. What were they supposed to do? Did they just not do enough of it or like? I, I don't know enough about that. I believe hmm. that the mixture was not correct. Okay. Um, and in fact, actually this next point here talks about it a little bit. Uh, the replacement of the nozzle on the de-icing vehicle with a non-standard part resulted in the application of a less concentrated ethylene glycol solution than intended. So mm. the solution was a little weaker. Gotcha. Uh, there's no information available in regard to the effectiveness of anti-icing procedures in protecting aircraft from icing, which relates to uh, time and environmental conditions. Contrary to Air Florida procedures, neither engine inlet plugs nor pedostatic covers were installed during the de-icing of Flight 90. And that's something we've talked about in other incidents. They didn't cover their exterior equipment when the de-icing was applied. Oh. Uh, we've talked about it in other situations. Like, remember, we talked about the plane that was stored out in the Dominican Republic without a pedo mm -hmm, cover mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and a wasp and built a, yeah. you know, a nest in there. Um, so, 
and we've talked about that plane that got painted and they didn't, you know, protect the pedo tubes correctly. Uh, they should have covered them before they de-iced them and they didn't. Yeah. Neither the Air Florida maintenance representative who should have been responsible for proper accomplishment of the de-icing, anti-icing operation, nor the captain of Flight 90 who was responsible for ensuring the aircraft was free from snow or ice at dispatch, verified the aircraft was free of snow or ice uh, contamination before pushback and taxi. Someone should have verified that the de-icing was successful and no one did. Yeah. Uh, th- th- this next one covers something that we didn't really get into. I'm going to read this one and then I'll explain it a bit. Uh, contrary to flight manual guidance, the flight crew used reverse thrust in an attempt to move the aircraft from the ramp. This resulted in blowing snow, which might have adhered to the aircraft. Remember, it was really snowy and icy and the tug that was supposed to push the plane back yeah. was having trouble getting traction to push the plane back. So the crew turned on their engines and blasted some reverse thrust to try to help the, the tug out and they did manage to get pushed back. The unintended side effect is it could blow snow up, which sticks to the plane mm. and makes, you know, yeah. the icing conditions worse. The flight was delayed awaiting clearance about 49 minutes between completion of the de-icing, anti-icing operation and initiation of takeoff. That's a long time. In a bad, a long bad time. weather yeah. like that? Mm-hmm. Um, I've been on passenger planes before where you get de-iced, you know, you start going to take off and then too much time passes and you got to get de-iced again. Uh, I've definitely had that happen. That probably should have been a situation that they went through here. And we, like we said, they talked about it, but they opted to try to get the plane in front of them to melt their ice instead. The flight crew did not use engine anti-ice during ground operation or takeoff. The engine inlet pressure probe on both engines became blocked with ice before initiation of takeoff. This is the probe that feeds the um, EPR gauge for them. So that's why I was giving them mm-hmm. false readings. It was blocked with ice because... The engine anti-ice system was off. Yeah. Uh, The flight crew was aware of the adherence of snow or ice to the wings while on the ground awaiting takeoff for clearance. They knew that there was accumulation on the wings. Yeah, because they talked about it. He's like getting, trying to get another plane's fart to heat it up. (laughs) Right. So clearly they knew they shouldn't have been doing. And in fact, this next point is the one you just mentioned. The crew attempted to de-ice the aircraft by intentionally positioning the aircraft near the exhaust of the aircraft ahead in line. This was contrary to flight manual guidance and may have contributed to the adherence of ice on the wing leading edges and to the blocking of the engine's uh, probes. So they can't say for certain, but it probably made the situation worse. The flight crew set takeoff thrust by reference to the EPR gauges to a target indicator of 2.04 EPR, but the EPR gauges were erroneous because of the ice blocked probes. And the thrust is different than like their speed. So the thrust is the amount of force coming out of the engines, which propels the plane, which Uh gives it speed. So it would be like, you need to accelerate in your car very quickly, but instead of flooring it, you give it half the gas. You're still going to accelerate. You're just not going to accelerate as quickly. Did they get to speed that they needed to be? Or is that less important? They were. They got to the speed eventually. Remember I said it took them 15 seconds long. It took them 45 seconds instead of 30 seconds. They got there. But they weren't going, they didn't have enough thrust to actually fly. Yeah. Right. It was insufficient. And then the ice on the wing also yeah. required more airspeed to maintain lift. And they didn't have that. The engine thrust actually produced by each engine during takeoff was equivalent to an EPR of 1.7, about 3,750 pounds net thrust per engine less than that which would have been produced at the actual takeoff of EPR 2.04. So they were way below their target thrust. They needed a lot more. The first officer was aware of an anomaly in engine in- instrument readings or throttle position after thrust was set and during the takeoff roll. Although the first officer expressed concern that something was, quote, not right to the captain four times during the takeoff, the captain took no action to reject the takeoff. This maybe is a little CRM related to, right? Like, yeah. The first officer's calling out a potential problem and the captain's just ignoring him. Like the first officer should have aborted the takeoff or, you know, been more strenuous, be like, hey, we are stopping. Something's wrong. Right. We need to, yeah. God. And, I, and the fact that they're like de-icing, nah, that one is... Right. Unbelievable. The aircraft accelerated at a lower than normal rate during takeoff, requiring 45 seconds and nearly 5,400 feet of runway, which was 15 seconds and nearly 2,000 feet more than normal to reach liftoff speed. So took them a lot longer time-wise and distance-wise to take off. 2,000 extra feet. Yeah. It's one of the things they were realizing. How long is the typical runway? Um, the one of them here in Austin, I think one is like 8,400 and the other one's like 10,000. Okay. 
2000 is a lot percentage wise. Yeah. I mean, they needed 5,040 feet of runway. That's a lot of runway. Oh, the nowadays it looks like Washington Reagan has three runways. I'm going off the long one here. Let's see, the other ones are kind of short. The, the runway as it stands now is about 7,169 feet long. So if it took them 5,400, that's the majority of that runway. But again, it's been 40 years. They may have yeah. redone this runway. They may have expanded it. So I'm just looking at the, the current chart. The aircraft's lower than normal acceleration rate during takeoff was caused by lower than normal engine thrust settings. Snow and or ice contamination on the wing leaning edge produced a nose up pitching moment as the aircraft was rotated for liftoff. So that accumulation on the leading edge of the wings caused them to pitch up a little more than normal. Okay. To counter the nose up pitching moment and prevent immediate loss of control, an abnormal forward force on the control column was required. And we've talked about that when the stick shaker activates or when they think they're going to stall, you push forward. Um, so they had to give an unusual amount of force uh, forward, I should say. Uh, the aircraft initially achieved a climb but failed to accelerate after liftoff. The aircraft's stall warning stick shaker activated almost immediately after liftoff and continued until impact. The aircraft encountered stall buffet and descended to impact at a high angle of attack. The aircraft could not sustain flight because of the combined effects of airframe snow or ice contamination, which degraded lift and increased drag and the lower than normal thrust set by reference to the erroneous EPR indications. Mm -hmm. Either condition alone should not have prevented continued flight. So if one of those things had happened, they should have been able to continue. But the fact that both things came together caused a real problem. Yeah. Yeah, it's all these things. It's like everything, that's everything all coming together. Right. And that's such a common thing that we say here. It's almost never one thing. It's almost never, this is it, and that's all that caused this, mm -hmm. this problem. It's always, well, this happened, and this happened, and kind of led to this, and then this may have contributed. It's always so layered. Continuation of flight should have been possible immediately after stick shaker activation if appropriate pitch control had been used and maximum available thrust had been added. This is what I mentioned earlier. If they had immediately applied full thrust and they continued to like nose the plane uh, down a bit, they should have been able to recover. Uh, while the flight crew did add appropriate pitch control, they did not add thrust in time to prevent impact. Um, there was another little footnote here in the conclusions. Uh, we didn't really get into this just because there was so much other stuff to talk about. Uh, I'll read these next two points and then we'll talk about it. The local controller erred in judgment and violated air traffic control procedures when he cleared flight 90 to take off ahead of an arriving Eastern flight 1451 with less than the required separation. Eastern 1451 touched down on runway 36 before flight 90 lifted off. The separation closed to less than 4,000 feet in violation of the two mile preparation requirement in the air traffic control handbook. So basically the controller told flight 90 to take off and told another plane to come in and land. And the other plane started landing before Flight 90 had lifted off. Oh. They were both on the runway at the same time. So it violated the minimum separation they needed. Yeah. I think the controller was just, since they were backed up, he was just trying to get people in and out as quickly as possible. And he, he got these planes too close. It didn't contribute to this accident, mm -hmm. but it was a violation. So that's why they noted. Runway distance reference markers would have provided the flight crew invaluable assistance in evaluating the aircraft's acceleration rate and in making a go, no-go decision. Runway distance reference markers are the things I mentioned earlier, where on the sides of the runway still have big numbers. It's like a black sign with a white number that shows you how much runway you've used and how much runway is left. So they're very, very helpful. That way you know, hey, we should yeah. be in the air by now. Um, the Federal Aviation Administration's failure to implement adequate flow control and the inability to use gatehold procedures at Washington National Airport resulted in extensive delays between completion of aircraft de-icing operations and issuance of takeoff clearances. Um, this is interesting. Um, this was actually, this is, a, this is a huge takeaway. This sounds very boring, uh -huh. like a very uh, mundane point to talk about, but this is probably the biggest takeaway from this entire accident is the de-icing process was kind of rethought from the ground up at this oh. point after this crash. Um, now, worldwide, typically, back then, de-icing would happen out by the gate. You would get de-iced uh -huh. and you taxi out and go take off. Now, de-icing happens closer to the runway. You de-ice oh, and then you yeah. immediately go, <laughs> which makes a lot more sense. Makes a lot more sense. So you're saying, like, not the biggest takeaway in that, like, the smoking gun of this incident, but the biggest impact. Right. The biggest increase right. in safety yeah. is the fact that now worldwide, 
typically de-icing happens a lot closer to runway so that you don't have this 49 minutes between de-icing and takeoff situation anymore. Yeah. Um, if you, if you're ever taxing, if you're ever a passenger in a plane, you're taxing around, look out the window, look at the airport. I think I, I, that's, I always do that. I'm always staring out at different airports and you'll typically, you'll see, oh, that's where the de-icing is. Like there's the de-icing pad. Uh, in the winter, it's easy to find because they're using it. Uh, in the summer, not so much. In Austin, I don't, I don't, honestly don't know where they de-ice here in Austin. <laughs> uh, it's not much of an issue for us typically, but in other airports in the North, you definitely see it in Denver, uh, specifically, they have a big de-icing uh, operations over there. Uh, I think it's really interesting to watch if you ever fly into Denver uh, in the winter. Anyway, always look out the window. That's my take. <laughs> it's super cool. You can learn a lot and you can see a lot. I think it's super fascinating. Encouraging me to look. I, I always, a lot of times I'll get on a plane and I'll check out, like get all oh, my no. stuff situated and I'll like, you know. I feel like I'm like that private pilot who was there, like especially in Austin, if we're taking off yeah. or like if I'm a passenger on a plane and we're on uh, one eight left, three six right. Like I've taken off and landed on that runway myself many times. So I'm always like, "Ooh, look! I know exactly where we are." You know, <laughs> I, that, there's this, there's here's that. Like it's just, and it's really fun for me. Anyway, back to uh, the conclusions here. The average impact loads on the passengers were within human tolerance. However, the accident was not survivable because of the complex dynamics of impact caused the destruction of the fuselage and the cabin floor, which in turn caused loss of occupant restraint. The survival of four passengers and one flight attendant was attributed to the relative integrity of the seating area where the tail section separated. We've talked about this before in another accident where the forces were survivable. The seats were rated to survive these kinds of forces, but the floor gave out because of the impact. Mm. Like the fuselage and the floor itself weren't strong enough. Yeah. And the people who did survive, it was because their area was relatively saved because that's where the tail section separated with landing gear still down too did that like contribute like they hit like they're in the back of the plane and they hit the wheels which kind of like the landing gear probably would have still been down at this point the, i know that they separated in the part i, I kind of skipped over like where everything was laid out i know that they separated and they were further away i don't know exactly what part hit the bridge and like how it came mm. apart because that that's not there's no film of that you know there's yeah. no there's no way to know that uh so i can't answer that for certain the last conclusion here, rescue of the survivors was due solely to the expeditious response of a U.S. Park Police helicopter and the heroic actions of the helicopter crew and one bystander. The other thing we didn't get into here in the rescue in this, this helicopter that saved these people was the rotor wash from the helicopter was also pushing the people down into the water. Oh. So it became a really delicate balance for them. Like, how close can you get without forcing the people yeah. back underwater. Oh, um, again, watch the footage. It's incredible. All right, so just to wrap up, they've got their probable cause here in the report. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the flight crew's failure to use engine anti-ice during ground operation and takeoff. Their decision to take off was snow slash ice on the airfoil surfaces of the aircraft and the captain's failure to reject the takeoff during the early stage when his attention was called to an anomalous engine instrument reading. The yep. attributing to the accident were the prolonged ground delay between de-icing and receipt of air traffic control takeoff clearance, during which the airplane was exposed to continual precipitation. The known inherent pitch-up characteristic of the 737 aircraft when the leading edge is contaminated with even small amounts of snow or ice, and the limited experience of the flight crew in jet transport winter operations. That's like really just summarizes the entire <laughs> episode in a couple of sentences, just kind of wraps it all up super, super concisely. But that's it. Air Florida Flight 90. Unbelievable to me all around that it like it hit a bridge with cars on it. People survived. There's like even though even though it's 1982, there's news footage of the rescue, like people diving into icy water, a helicopter dipping its skids into water. It, it like you said, Chris, multiple times. It's like a movie. <laughs> uh, it's just it's just so unbelievable. This is such a a monumental iconic accident uh that really entirely preventable but really kind of changed the de-icing process and the way that that works to make uh air travel safer for everyone it changed the de-icing game it did totally did they rewrote the rules all right well that's it for this episode of black box down we are going to be back in two weeks with a supplemental episode we have two supplemental episodes left that we're going to do before we wrap up this podcast for good you should come check out RTX here in Austin. Uh, go to rtxaustin.com for details. We're going to have a panel there uh, for Black Box Down. I might bring, I don't know exactly what we're going to do on the panel yet. Uh, I've been thinking about maybe compiling like a speed run of incidents we never talked about. 
uh, oh. and just maybe kind of covering those. Maybe we'll talk about you know everything we've learned over the last three years doing this podcast. It should be a really cool retrospective, I think, of everything that we've done. And we have some fun announcements coming up soon about some new shows. Yeah, yeah. We uh, both Chris and I have new shows that we're working on with Black Box Down winding down. I think my new show is going to be coming out in early July. It's very much in the spirit of Black Box Down. It's a it's it's going to be like a history podcast. It's kind of like an overview of the Cold War. Uh, I don't want to give too much away about it. It's got. An, I think it has a really interesting hook, and I think you might really like it. Uh, that'll be coming out here, and we'll be talking about that real soon. And Chris's, I think yours is a little further away. No, no, I think it's around the same time. Oh, is it? Presumably. Cool. Well, I look forward <laughs> to that one, too. Uh, and it's also, yeah, I think people who listen to Black Box Down are also going to like it. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Anyway, we'll be back in uh, two weeks with a supplemental episode. All right. Bye. <laughs>